One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good movement, and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns, so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with friends, and I have a new friend with me, Sunny Bonnell. Sunny Bonnell and Ashley Hanberger are authors of the groundbreaking business career book, Rare Breed, A Guide to Success for the Defiant, Dangerous, and Different. They are also creators of the popular YouTube series and founders of the game-changing leadership and culture consultancy motto. I am thrilled to talk to Sunny today, and you will be as well to hear all about being a rare breed. Welcome, Sunny and Ashley. Sunny is representing the Sunny and Ashley team. I'm so glad to have you on here. Thank you so much for having me. So you wrote, you guys wrote this guide to success for the defiant, dangerous, and different rare breed. Let's just launch right in. I mean, how did you decide to write a book? Yeah, it was a bit of a um, a fluke, to be honest. Uh, I had, you know, we'd obviously been running our company for about ten years, and I had. This is an interesting story. Actually, someone someone asked me to mentor them. And I just was like, I'm too busy. I don't have time. And he just, he was, you know, in my inbox all the time, just like, please mentor me. And I was like, all right, if I mentor you, you have to mentor me. And so we just kind of started this email dialogue back and forth. And he was mostly asking me for career advice. How do I, you know, become a leader in my company how do i you know grow my brand how do i grow my visibility and one of the email conversations that we had he said have you ever thought about writing a book and i said no way <laughs> that doesn't sound fun at all and uh you know long story short he ended up making an introduction to a acquisitions editor who ended up offering us a book deal which we ended up turning down and we just weren't ready to write it. We didn't really feel like we had a true concept formulated. And it wasn't until about another year and a half where we started to uh, reflect back on a conversation that I'd had with my dad back in 2007 when we were at a point where we were thinking about giving up and closing our business. We were about 2 years into business, 20-something-year-olds, had started our company with like $250, no 
no real uh, business framework, you know, and just kind of being very rogue out in the world. And had this conversation with my dad, and he said, "You two are a rare breed. Not not everyone's going to get you. Not everybody's going to love you. But the ones who do will never forget you." And I remember having this kind of conversation where he was like, "Succeed because of who you are, not despite who you are." And it was kind of the conversation that sort of changed the trajectory of like where we, not only how we saw ourselves, but also what it meant to be a rare breed, what it meant to be unordinary among the kind, and what what it meant to actually turn those pieces of yourself that other people criticize into your selling points. And so that's what the book name became. And we kind of reflected on it and said, we should write a book about rare breeds and what it means to... Uh, Find your way and own all of who you are in a world that tries to stop you. That's beautiful. I love it when dads give good advice like that. You know, they have that wisdom and the ability to also look both subjectively and objectively at your gifts and talents. And you write in the book that it must have been your father. I think both of your grandfathers um, had worked for themselves and that you had really both seen and witnessed the lows. Of, an, of being an entrepreneur. And yet you navigated through that knowledge to start this company back in 2007, I believe, the motto. 2005, actually. 2005. Yeah. So yeah, your brand agency. Out of college. Yeah, this is fascinating because again, you, you had witnessed, like you said, some of the lows of being an entrepreneur and how difficult it can be, the challenges. What was the Obviously, well, there were some seeds there, but what was the impetus to drop out of college and start this brand agency called Motto, which by the way, you just, you have me at Motto. I love that, that what a, it just encapsulates everything. But how did you guys decide, like, let's go now and not even finish college and, and start this on our own? We were both in college on two different tracks. And I was going to be a veterinarian and I was in pre-vet school and Ashley was going to be a journalist and an English major. And I was the first one to be moonlighting on the side as a graphic designer. I'm historically in my, in my life, I've been a musician. I grew up playing uh, music since I was eight years old. So I was actually more, more on the track of probably becoming a musician, but decided that I would go into something that felt like a, a little bit more secure, which would be, you know, becoming a veterinarian. And I was moonlighting on the side as a graphic designer uh, for various musicians and bands and things like that. And I was just doing it as kind of a, a side gig. It wasn't really anything I was completely uh, madly in love with, but it was something that I found myself doing it, you know, one and two o'clock in the morning. And so uh you know, I, I I'm in school, and Ashley and I have this conversation where we're like, we just we're going through the motions. And I said, well, I don't know. You want to start a company? <laughs> do you want to uh, come help me out? Do, you want to come help me do some design? And she's like, yeah, sure, why not? And so, literally, it was that conversation. And within a week, we dropped out of college and had taken this little shop in a in a very very shady part of town. Uh, in a in an abandoned warehouse, and we were working uh, in a kind of a fourteen by fourteen room, and decided that we were going to try to start this company. I think the thing that we saw around us, and again, keep in mind, this is back in two thousand five in a very small coastal town where there's only a few 
big players in terms of advertising agencies. Very few people at that point were calling themselves branding agencies. And, or you know, they would call themselves like a graphic designer or, uh, or an ad agency. That was kind of where you fit in the bucket. And I looked around and I, I just sort of thought that the work looked a little bit homogenized, a little bit vanilla. And all of the people that were running those companies were older men. They were, they were the old guard. And I felt at that point uh, that, that Ashley and I could change the conversation. So it really became a, kind of a, a Hail Mary at throwing the stone you know, at, the, at, at Goliath and saying, I think we can do this better. I don't know how we're going to do it better. I don't know what we mean by that. But we felt that we could do it better. And we felt that we could create um, a change in the conversation and in the work and make the work more meaningful. And so that's kind of where it started. We just had this vision that we wanted to move companies uh, from beyond what they do and sell to what they stand for and believe in. And that's where the idea of motto came from, is this kind of idea of having a purpose, having an, a, a reason that you get up and go to work every day. And what we found was there was a real need for these companies to not just talk about that they had a branding problem, but a lot of times it was a leadership problem. It was not even a branding problem. It, it, some of the brand was a reflection on that, but it was primarily that leaders were stuck in their own way and they were not being asked the, 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 the right questions. They were not being asked questions like, why do you exist? Why should anybody care? What's the vision of the world that you hope to create? And they were, they were just basic questions and they seemed so simple and yet no one had ever asked them. You know, nobody was asking these companies those questions, but we were. And I think the reason that we did that was because we did not have another agency or anyone else to look to. So all we ran on was pure audacity and pure curiosity. And that allowed us to go into companies and kind of disarm them because we were you know, pretty young. I mean, we were just coming in and saying, hey, we just want to know who you are and understand your company and what your dynamic and what are you like as a leader? And so we would start asking these kind of very basic questions. And they were like, I just need a logo. And I'm like, yeah, but you need more than a logo. You, you, you actually need more than a logo because the logo isn't the thing that's kind of um, your problem. And I think that it was really interesting to have that kind of foresight or to have that type of awareness so early on. And I look back at it and realize how actually unique it was for us to embody that at such a young age. So unique. And really, it just strikes me as a, a serious intuition. Because I think, you know, having run my own companies, I, I don't think I really had a handle or understanding of what brand is and how, yes, it's not just a logo, but the spirit of what I want to be putting out into the world. How did you have that intuition at such a young age? Did you have some one that you were growing up with uh, that you looked up to and learned from? Or did Ashley um, that knew like this brand awareness is so, uh, so many layers? And, you know, just how did you know to ask those kind of questions in the first place? My dad, you know, he was a coal miner's son, very similar story to Ashley and I, in that he had no education. You know, I think he barely graduated high school and started his company with $150. And, you know, everyone told him he would fail. And I remember growing up with this kind of person that I was looking to who, who had this 
shadow that was extremely long and 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 very very prominent in terms of just his character and he would do things that he was not taught and he just kind of learned the hard way and what i saw him embody that i thought a lot of companies that we were talking to at that point did not embody was some of the people that had worked for him uh, had worked for him, some of them half their life. And they would drive sometimes two and three hours to work every day to work for him. He also did something really interesting where he wore the same uniform to work every day. And I always just thought that was so interesting because then I learned that Steve Jobs did things like that. You know, this was back in like the 90s, like the 80s and 90s when he was doing this. And I just remember everyone I met and all of the people that worked for him were like, your dad is just a phenomenal human being. And he's, he's, he's our leader. And I just remember him just being this embodiment of, of this, these characteristics, these kind of virtues that I, I always admired. I just had never been able to codify them. I didn't know how to describe what it was. But my dad was like the original like rare breed you know, to me. And then I think he was giving Ashley and I that advice to sort of learn from the things that he was doing. And it wasn't until we wrote the book, you know, 15 years later, that we were able to reflect back on that and go, that's where we learned it from. It, it, we learned how to be a leader by watching a leader and not really knowing that that was, you know, kind of imprinting on us in those early years. But I think it was as we began to. Um, sort of embody the, the lessons that he was giving us. I think it allowed us to go into to companies and and also understand the difference between a good company and a bad company, a toxic culture and a good culture, a good leader and a bad leader. And and to be quite frank, I've now been in some of the biggest brands on earth. I've walked the halls of some of the greatest greatest brands we've ever known, and I've worked with some pretty in, you know incredible leaders. I've also worked with some very bad leaders and they do share some commonalities. And that's why Rare Breed was so important because it was more than just identifying uh, the traits that someone had that made them good. It also was about identifying the traits that made the company or the leader turn sideways. And that's, that's kind of how I think we just, uh, we learned by doing. Amazing. And, and modeling. I think that modeling, like you said, with your dad... You, if you model it, that has such a long, longer lasting effect, um, profound impact on people who witness that. It's, it's sometimes the intangibles, but you really can really see if somebody models that behavior, um, those personality traits that come through in the company themselves, it, it can be very powerful. Or like you said, I'm sure you've also seen the opposite. So in that in that realm, before you dive into the ty- types of rare breeds, is there a type of rare breed that is better suited for leadership of a company? Not necessarily. I think that many of the traits that we talk about in the book, you know, there's seven of them, and what we what we did when we were exploring them out was we had hundreds of traits that we were looking at, and what they all needed to have was they needed to have a dark side. So they had to be as uplifting as they were undoing. They had to be very dangerous when used well, and they had to be dangerous when they were used not well. And so we kept kind of like laddering up to these seven. And what we found was is that some of the greatest leaders had one of these dominant traits. Many of us have them all, right? But there's always a dominant one. 
And you know, you can be rebellious, audacious, obsessed, weird, hot-blooded, hypnotic, and emotional. Those are all things that we are taught in life are actually counterintuitive to our success. But what we're saying in the book is, no, actually, they're your superpower. They're your selling points if you know how to use them in the right way. But each one of those things is dark. You know, you can be obsessed and completely spiral out of control. You can be audacious and you can also equally be hubristic. So that's what we were looking at. And... um out of the leaders that we've worked with that I think are actually really, really powerful and, and use their forces for good, you know, they have these one of these seven traits. Uh, and so I think they inherently absolutely can be good and they can be one of these seven. They don't have to be exclusive, but there's usually a primary that's, uh, that's working very hard. In the case of somebody like Elon Musk, for example, like you could argue that he's obsessive you could uh, you could argue that he's rebelling against you know the, the the constructs of norm, but you could also I think everyone can agree that he's really audacious, and to want to put people on Mars is about as audacious as you can get. Yeah. So you know that's that's his audacity at work, and I think it's actually making him do the impossible, which is why so many people are like, "There's no way this guy's going to do it. He's crazy." Well. A lot of people just a year ago, a year and a half ago, said that there was no way he was going to be able to put, you know, partner with NASA and get people up in, in space. Well, he did. And he did it successfully. He did. So what Sonny is referring to is that they discovered, um, Sonny and Ashley, in the book, they talk about this, the connection between the spirit of the person at the helm of a company and the brand experience that company creates for its customers and the virtues or vices of that person at the helm is inevitably going to make the company thrive, turn sideways, or fall apart, like, like you were saying. With the companies that you've worked with, how much did that play out in, in both you know, really thriving or maybe not fully falling apart? Hopefully you didn't witness that, but how much of that did you observe? And where does the person at the helm and the customers, where, where do they kind of come together and also uh, come apart? Yeah, I think it's at that intersection of, of the dark side. Um, many of these companies that we work with now... So, so what's really interesting about the way Rare Breed has kind of evolved is when we originally wrote the book, and I think it's important to kind of start here because it'll shape where I'm going with the conversation. But when we wrote Rare Breed, we did not write it as a branding book. It was more of a personal development book. So we knew that it was bigger than a branding book. We knew that it was bigger than a business book. And we realized that people would want to read it because they were struggling in their life, work, and career with not only embodying these traits, but also understanding them, how they could be leveraged to become their selling points. When in the 2020s, you're mostly going to get fired for these traits. You're going to be pushed out of your company unless you're entrepreneurial and you're running your own company. And even then, you're probably going to piss a lot of people off. So how, how could we write a book that would help the rare breed navigate the world? Uh, and so what we quickly figured out was that not only were individuals reading it, but leaders were picking up the book. And then leaders of teams were picking up the book and they were like, I need you guys to come in here and teach us how to not only think like a rare breed, but also to embrace the rare breed 
and become more diverse and become more inclusive because our pattern has been that we don't understand the rebel. We say we want the rebel, but when we hire them, we actually don't know what to do with them because they just create a ton of trouble. So the natural reaction for many companies is to push them out or not give them a voice. They don't actually want to hear them because they're creating too much of a ruckus. So what what we're seeing now is like we're going into big, big companies who are like, this book is changing the way that we're thinking and we're approach, approaching diversity and inclusion. It's changing the way that we brand. It's changing the way that we lead. And, um, and it's changing the way that they are looking at... They're looking at themselves through one of these virtues and they're applying it to everything that they're doing. And then they're also trying to understand, well, how do I seek out the rare breed and hire them and bring them into my company and make them my competitive edge. So, you know, of course, like there's a danger to this, right? Like you can have some really audacious people in your company and they can create, you know, an entire breakdown. Um, Or you can harness the power of them in your team and completely do things that you never thought you could do. It's all about how you understand them and how you give them the tools to become their best self. Many rare breeds are destructive and self-destructive when someone is not understanding them. And that's kind of the reality of their life from day one. Rare breeds are phenomenally misunderstood. And so are they, they are in companies as well. So what we're doing is giving teams and, and leaders and entrepreneurs the tools to basically make them their secret weapon. So essentially, this book is for anyone. This is for individual understanding of your own personality. So for those of you who haven't seen the book, it's phenomenal, by the way. I I've, I've, haven't gotten through all of it, but you take the test and you, um, it's similar. I don't want to, I hate to use this, but it's like taking another personality type test, like a Myers-Briggs, giving you um, questions that you answer with matches that might not be exactly you, but as you know, similar to a response that you would have. They're very different. So I'm really, I'm, I want to go in a moment and talk about how you came up with the questions because I imagine that is very challenging to come up with the questions to kind of not pinhole people into different, these different categories, but to get a, a picture. Um, so you take that and then each, you know, all the chapters have these, these seven qualities, rebellious, audacious, obsessed, hot-blooded, weird, hypnotic, and emotional, and then give you, like you said, ideas of where it, you're going to struggle perhaps where you're really where your power can can be um amplified and kind of tools for for what would best suit your personality type and what i what i love a lot is i always my message has always been work on your strengths like capitalize on those like we all have we're all innately talented you know we are we all are innately rare breeds but you're right. It's that the culture, conditioning, or or whatever it is, family, school, tells you otherwise. Tells you you're too, you know, rebellious, and you need to settle down and you know walk in the line, you know walk on the line and color in the lines. And so probably those so many people who have those those beautiful rebellious qualities have struggled with that. And I think your book will help the individuals, but also, of course 
people in the company, I'm sure in a well-rounded company, you want kind of all of these personality traits represented in their best way. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and this, you know, keep in mind, this is conditioning. So you kind of touched on it a little bit. So this kind of conditioning starts from the moment that we're born. And sometimes the very eyes that we look into are the eyes of our parents. And even they're sort of envisioning a life that we haven't even lived yet. And sometimes what happens to many people is the path that they are walking is not the path that they truly believe in. They're in a job, they're not in a calling. And they're ignoring the voice that tells them that they should be traveling a different path because our friends, our mentors, our family, people that love us, they don't want us to get hurt. So they try to kind of keep us from, you know, like as Steve Jobs says, you know, from from banging up the walls too much, right? Like don't get hurt. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it conditions us over time. We don't realize we're being conditioned, but we're being conditioned over time. And at some point we maybe even become silent and some of us stay silent forever. And we wrote Rare Breed at a time when we could reflect on what it was like to have a people tell us that we would fail, to have people tell us that we were too hip for the room, that we were too rogue, too female, too broke, too inexperienced, too young, too female to succeed. And we wrote it for people who needed to hear their own voice, who need to hear their own voice, to remember that they have a voice and that you don't have to go down the path that other people see for you. You just have to choose your path. You have to find the the place that you really come alive. And that's why Rare Breed is so important right now because there's a lot of people out there in the world who do not hear their own voice. And we've had so many people reach out to us and write us and they're like, changing careers. They're doing things they've never done before. I had someone reach out to me the other day who like completely abandoned a career that she's been in for 20 years and is now shifted to become a lawyer. She's always wanted to be a lawyer and her family didn't want her to, and now she's going for it. Um, so people are kind of making some crazy, crazy life decisions, but you know, it's, they've, they've, they've come alive. And it, and if that book does that, and then it also helps companies and teams also embrace the diverse landscape that we really need. We need more Black people at the top. We need more women at the top. We need we need diversity and inclusion. And many of our companies are not set up this way. They, they say they are, but they're actually not. You can look at a lot of the boards across America and know that there's very few of the people that they say are in that company are actually at that company. Uh, mm-hmm. It's getting better. But, it, but you know, I remember when Ashley and I started that... Uh, we would we would be the youngest people in the room you know and we were discredited so often and i'm not bitter about it but i remember it and it still happens today so you know just imagine how many people it's happening to right now in terms of people being doubted people who are being um, forced back into a corner people who are shoved out just for being different and you know, I, I like to say that's how the rose grew from the concrete. You know, be thankful for small minds. And rare breeds, they, there's no lane for the rare breed. You know, they, 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 they build their own, they carve their own lane. So if this book can be that tool for people and, and help them find where they belong, find who accepts them and loves them for who they are, all of who they are, not just the pretty parts, then 
I feel like we've we've written something that is is meaningful. Oh, I totally agree. And I'm just listening and echoing so much because I I know how lucky I was in a similar way it sounds like you were with your dad where I had parents who really um told me and modeled for me at a young age. Um I I have three brothers and I was it's you know equally capable of of com- achieving and and succeeding in any way as they were, you know, and I could be anybody I wanted to be. I, you know, they weren't like, take the safe lane and do this. I think the only piece of advice my ever dad, my dad ever gave me was when I decided after a week of pre-med that I wasn't going to do being a doctor was not going to be, I'm like, this is, I told him, and he's a surgeon, he was a surgeon and he said, I get it. I said, these, I don't think these people are going to be my people in college. This is, they're too intense. I want to have a much more well-rounded experience. And so I was kind of, I went the other direction and was thinking about art, you know, going more into the arts. And then when I finally came back around, like, I really do want to go into healthcare and medicine. And I thought about being a physician's assistant. And my dad said, Laura, you're, you're too dominant for that. Like you, you know, and he said it in a really kind way. Yeah. He's like, you do not want to be, you're basically underneath a doctor, you know, and you're subordinate to a doctor. And he's like, that's just not who you are. You want, and like, so I became a physical therapist, which is much more autonomous and, you know, wonderful, but I just so appreciated that. He didn't say, no, that's like, you know, lesser than a doctor. He just said that is for your personality. I just don't think that would be right for you. I love it. I know. So great. So powerful. Like you don't want to be a subordinate, you know, and he, so she, you're like, you're not the physician's assistant. You're the right. doctor. Yeah, exactly. He's like, you want to, you're going to come in the room and tell people what to do. You don't want to be like on the cor- over in the corners, somebody's, you know, barking orders at you. Yeah. And so but at least you saw that in you, you know, oh, imagine how many people like don't, don't have that. Exactly. You know, they don't have anybody telling them like, Hey, you're, you've exactly. got this gift. And that was what was really interesting that I even saw um, with, with Rare Breed. We, we did a talk, a women's event, I guess it was maybe about four months ago, um, kind of before the pan, right before the pandemic hit. Uh, we a little bit longer than that. We we did a we did a talk, and for six hundred women. And after the the um, the event, there was a line for people to come and and have us sign the book and and talk to us. And somebody walked up, and when I opened the book where she wanted me to sign, she had a note at the top, and she said, uh, "Dave." You're a rare breed. Own all of who you are. Love mom. That was, I was like, that is amazing. Like it, it really like choked me up in the moment because I was like, she recognizes that her son is a rare breed. And, and then, then I started having people come up to me afterwards and they were like, you know, my daughter's a rare breed. I, I feel like I, I don't know how to like manage them. I don't know what to do with them. And I was like, wow, this concept is really bigger than I thought it was. It would it would appeal, you know, to a lot of different types of people who were like the parents of a rare breed, the you know leader of a rare breed, and then being a rare breed as a young professional, and just kind of the ladders of those individuals. So, yeah, it's it's just been um it's been really cool to to know that you know that it resonates with people on that level. And you had asked earlier, I think, about the quiz. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because I do feel and I and just. Um, Piggybacking on what you were saying about how you know these are these are real psychological and emotional concepts that people are that are people are witnessing themselves and and you know with their children and whatnot like how much of the psychology 
in developing the questions and whatnot did you have to learn about? Was it just instinctive? Yes. So how did you come up with those questions? Yeah. So we, you know, we'd had 15 years of studying the inner workings of leaders. And, you know, we got a first row seat into their mental breakdowns, into their um almost as like a therapist. I mean, I we we laugh sometimes and say that we're in the business of brand therapy, but it's kind of true. Like motto, what motto does is really unique in that we go into companies first and foremost to understand what makes them truly special. And that requires oftentimes they come with some some baggage that is preventing them from really truly shining, you know, and it could be a leadership problem, it could be a, a culture problem. It's usually stemming from inside the organization that something is at, at awry. And our job is to kind of go in and sort of harmonize this and, and bring focus into it and also give them answers and, and steer them in a direction. But most importantly, kind of show themselves back to themselves, almost like a revealing where we act as a mirror and then give them the words that they're missing because they're, they're, you know, trying to sort of discover what they are, why they matter, et cetera. And and that's our job. And so we've had 15 years of kind of being this, the study of the human condition, right? Where we go in and sometimes we've had leaders cry. We've had, we just had somebody a couple of weeks ago who cried. Uh, on a on a you know we were presenting the brand back to them and they literally cried and they were like we've never heard our story in this way uh, you've cracked us open in a way that we've we've never had before it's extraordinary what you guys do and I was like well we are, we aren't really a branding agency I'd call us maybe like a, a culture a leadership culture consultancy something along those lines with where we just do a little bit of branding but our true true sweet spot is that so we we brought that lessons and those ideas into the book. And also into the quiz, but what we ended up doing was partnering with a uh, psychologist and a professor who we worked with to help us establish the questions. Because what we were most concerned about was number one, we're not psychologists. Uh, we we certainly had quite a bit of uh, we've been in the rodeo a few times. We certainly didn't don't don't have that you know not not our bread and butter. And we wanted to bring somebody in that could could shine that that expertise on it. But we wanted to be very careful that people could not answer the questions and guess. So it was important that you couldn't read the question and go, oh, I know what I'm, I'm going to be. Like you come in kind of being like, I know I'm hot-blooded, um, which you might very well be. But like we didn't want to make sure that you could answer the questions and kind of get to the end and, and it would tell you that you were going to be hot-blooded because you already were sort of answering the questions in such a way that it would lead you there. So the questions are extremely ambiguous and we worked really, really hard on it. And we've had, I think, close to... at The last time I checked, I think we were at like 40,000 people who've taken the quiz with no marketing. We've done no marketing on it and we've had 40,000 people take it. And what's really interesting, even that on top of the 28 questions and, and what we've discovered, but like in 2019, when people took it and what people identify the large majority in 2020... Can you guess? But what would you guess the overwhelming sort of that that the forty thousand people that have taken it? What what trait do you think they are most either identifying with right now or have? I would say emotional. I mean, that's what I actually I was emotional, and I think you know it's interesting because I didn't know the traits beforehand, so I I do think that helped. Uh, but I think for anybody who is going to, everybody should go take the quiz. But and we'll put that in the show notes, the link for that, um, as well as all of you, you know, where to find the book. But and it's in the book as well, correct? 
the I don't know if the yeah I think the quiz is in the book yeah we we launched them about the same time we launched right. the quiz the YouTube show and the book roughly sort of consecutively so the book the quiz and then the YouTube series but yeah so I took it and then my PR person took it and then my COO took it and we all were emotional <laughs> which again who knows like I we, yes we can we're only looking through the lens of of, of at this moment and trying to answer as honestly as possible. So, um, well, so in that vein, since so many are, are in this emotional, what are, what are some, what are some things to, uh, like, I, I, I know in the book you say, I don't know if you use the dark side of emotional, but the negative of emotion, like what are some, some of the things we should be aware of as emotional rare breeds? And what are the things we should really, um, strategically capitalize on as emotional rare breeds? Yeah, I think emotional rare breeds are some of the most powerful empaths that I've ever personally encountered. They're great heart-centric leaders. They um, they hum on a different frequency than other people. They read the room in a different way. They feel things that other people don't. And they're 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 just big hearts, you know, most of the time. The downside, the dark side, if you will, not a downside, but the dark side, if if you're not careful, is that it can lead to imagining things that aren't there. Your antenna can be a little faulty. Uh, you can be over overtly emotional to where it's sort of instability. But what we found is that true emotional rare breeds uh, that that really kind of are in check. Um, they are amazing in terms of their ability to kind of see and feel in ways that other people just simply don't understand. And they're great in companies. They're great in they're great in leadership roles. You know, I think there's quite a few heart centric leaders that I can think of right now. Um, Gary Ridge from WD40. You know, Howard Schultz was obviously one. Of course, we all know and love Mr. Rogers. He was an absolute emotional rare breed. And there's there's quite a few out, out there in the world, and they're 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 very powerful when you know how to tune them in, and when they really can tap into their sensory abilities and their their EQ and be able to kind of leverage that. Um, just like you probably being a physical therapist, you're having to listen to the people that come to you, and they're like, "Yeah, my shoulder hurts," you know, and you're like, "You ha- you have to almost be like an investigator." It's it's the same thing like if I would have become a veterinarian, you know, dogs can't really tell you, they can't point. So you have to sort of be like emotionally in, in tune that like you know that your dog is kind of, you know, he's not feeling that great. Or, you know, in this case, like uh, you know, with you with being a physical therapist, you're gonna obviously be able to kind of understand some cues to look for and, and what 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 people aren't saying that you're gonna be able to pick up on. And I think that's a very, very, very valuable thing to have. But I think in life, we're taught that, oh, you're so emotional. You're too emotional. Like you use it as a negative. And what I found is that it's a, it's a powerful positive, you know? But of course, are there, there's instable rare breeds who are just like fly off the handle and are, are very emotional and, and you know, kind of um, having crying jags all the time and are not kind of the, the stable version of it. Absolutely. But for the most part, um, I find that they're, they're really powerful human beings. I agree. And I think for, for me, I do. Um, I'm, I'm one of the strong emotional ones. I'm more in tune with feeling like what others need. You know, like you said, somebody will come in and they'll start talking about they got this MRI and they have disc pain. And, you know, one of the first things I'll say is you're going to be okay. 
You know, it's like, and it's immediate, it's just like changes the demeanor because they're so scared. They're really just scared. And of course they don't, the pain isn't great and all that, but you know, I just know that, that just going right to there and letting somebody know, like, you're going to be okay. We're, we're really strong. Our spine is strong. It's like, boom. It's, and it just, and then I hold that strength for them until they can really sense it. I love um, that. And that's, yeah. I love that you're a conduit in that way. And I think that's, that's so powerful. And I love that you're so self-aware that you know that you're doing it. You know, that's, that's kind of what I think is, is really exciting about rare breed is when, when, when I have seen people go from kind of like knowing that they have these traits and then actually knowing that they're using the trait and it's actually empowering their career. It's busting down doors. It's opening things in ways that they never imagined possible. And when you see that kind of arc of where they, they're at in their life and then they kind of like really lean into that rare breedness that they have... What what it does for them is a sense of confidence and, and of really again owning who you are in a world that tries to own you. And what you're doing, and what I think I'm hearing you say is you're kind of like, yeah, I figured this out a while ago. Like I know who I am, and I'm really assured of your of, of who you are. And so that rare breed trait is already very dominant within you, and that's why you're probably amazing at your career and, and your work. You know, and that's that's what you want to be. You know, it's it's the book is really for people who are like still kind of trying to figure it out and, and don't know exactly how to harness those powers. But I, I, I do think that um, it is, and I realize again, like when you have just a leg up, uh, call it good luck, call it privilege, all, maybe all a lot of those things of, yeah, I just already started ahead because I had a great um, caregivers who, who just, you know, put me on a pedestal and like, you, you deserve to be here. So never let anybody tell you otherwise. And I think that I, I'm that person now for other people. And I realize like it can be people my own age, can be people in their mid thirties, whatever, younger, um, because they didn't necessarily have that. And we all deserve to be up here. You know, we do, we all deserve to accomplish what we want to, um, to be kind and to give and receive. We deserve that. But you do see how uh, all of these different things life have really taught people a different mindset. That's why I think this book is, I can, I can see why it would be life-changing for people. Changing your career is not just changing a job. It's changing who you perceive yourself to be. It is. That's massive. Yeah, it's huge. It's your identity. I mean, most of our work is wrapped up in our identity. So you're, you're, you're saying it right there. I mean, what, what I love is when people like buy the book and they're like, I read it, but they're like, I've just bought three books and I gave them to rare people that I think are like rare breeds that don't really know it. And what a gift to be able to tell somebody that you, that they're a rare breed. And what I what I think is really interesting, and I, I didn't know this when we were writing it. And I, I, I just kind of had this aha moment the other day, which is like so funny. But I was thinking about all the words that we've used for people that... Uh, how we describe people. And a lot of times like you use words like outlier or misfit or you know x factor like it's almost like you know when you're an outlier like you don't belong you know when you're a misfit you're 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 like the, the crumpy you're a problem the, you're yeah. a problem or, yeah. or you're like the ugly piece of fruit you know uh and and i was like but rare breed is such a, a it's such a power word it's like you are unordinary among the kind, but it's your gifts. It's it's who you are 
that makes you the standout. And it's a term that I think is something that doesn't make it a negative. It's like really something that makes someone and describes someone as being very special. Like you are one of a kind. And so when I love, I love when I hear other people giving books to other rare breeds and like being like, go read this. Um, because it just, it sh- it's like you recognize that in somebody else. And like, what more than do we want than somebody to say, I see you, I recognize you. And I believe in you, and you know you you are very different. You are very special, and say it in the most powerful way positive p- possible. I mean, how many of us like don't really hear that? You know, a lot of us don't. So to have someone recognize that in you is it's just you hold your head a little bit higher. Beautiful. All right, I have two questions for you. One is, what kind of rare breed are you? <laughs> I'm sure you because uh, I'm. And then the second is. Um, like thinking of like a historic figure living or, or in the past, not living anymore, what a rare breed that you would really admire some particular person and what you think they're rare breed, because they probably didn't take the quiz, but what you think they would be. So those are the two questions I have. So when we were, so in the earlier iterations of the quiz, I was, um, we actually had a primary and a secondary virtue. That's one that we were originally working on because some people were like, but I think I'm more than one. And, and so we were, we were testing the, the earlier iteration of the quiz and I was audacious and obsessed. And anyone that would, anyone that knows me know that that's absolutely true. Um, and I was like, but what's my dominant? So then when I took it again, I was audacious and that's pretty true. Like, if you tell me something is impossible, I will do everything I can off of short, sheer force of will to tell you that that's actually not true. Like I will, I will push, push, push until you know. Like you can't get you can't get rare breed to Oprah. And I'm like, watch me. Um, I got all the way up to our senior VP. Uh, I didn't get to Oprah per se, but I got to the next best thing, and I thought that was pretty pretty awesome. But uh, you know, everyone around me was like, you can't do that. You can't. A lot of people told us we couldn't create the show. Um, so we created the YouTube show that I was telling you about where we sit down and interview celebrity provocateurs, rare breeds, and we talk to them uh, in depth about um, what is their vice and what is their virtue. And we've sat down with Charlemagne the God and John Batiste from The Late Show and a few other really cool people, PJ Morton from Maroon 5. And uh, I remember people telling us like, you'll never get, you'll never get those people because you guys don't have a show yet and you don't, the book wasn't even written. And I was like, all right, well, we'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. You, you got the grit. Sure. You're going to be like double yeah. down now. Yeah. Double down now. Yeah. So, so audacious for sure. And then the second question. Um, wow. There's so many people I can think of, right? I think I'm, I've always been very curious about like Joan of Arc. I mean, just being a rebel in that period of time is like, wow. I don't know. What a, what a cool kind of... Um, story, you know, and I think of Amazing. we talk a lot about like Rosa Parks and what I thought was really interesting about her was that she wasn't your she wasn't your typical rebel. I felt like she was kind of a silent rebel, which a lot of rebels when you think of them, you think of them being brash and brass knuckles and you know just fist in the air and creating a ruckus, but you know Rosa Parks didn't do anything but refuse to give up her seat. And what a bold what a what a what a rebellious move. And how that didn't have to be loud or, you know, she didn't have to pound her fist on the back of the seat. Like she just didn't move. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I, what I, what I, what has continued to surprise me is 
how these individuals have showed up throughout throughout history. You know, I think of Eve probably being the first rebel taking the bite of the apple. Uh, but I but I also think of like the dark side, right? Like I think in politics right now, I can I can you could you could easily argue that there's some rare breeds out in the world who have also been some of the most evil. So yeah. that always fascinates me too, is that you can be either or. And but that you're still a rare breed, which is kind of interesting to me that you can you can be as dark, you can be evil, and yet you can be a force for good. And I I, I found that to be interesting as as we were looking historically at people who had kind of been rare breeds in their in their time period, what that looked like. And um, it's 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 an interesting conversation to see that some of the most uh, hypnotic leaders of all time have also been some of the most dangerous and evil. Yeah, because, you know, they get that taste of power mm-hmm. and, you know, it's power to do like it would Yoda, Yoda, Yoda would say, you know, power to do good. But, you know, it's like you also get a taste of the power and you'll do whatever it takes to maintain it. And that that sometimes, as we've seen with, you know, these historic leaders that you're referring to or currently, you know, it's like they'll do whatever it takes. And that includes, you know, not things that are immoral and unconscionable, but um, hopefully going forward in our history. Well, I mean, there will all, there'll always be, be the balance and the pulling of the, the, the different forces. But, I, and I think it's like what this book is really um, providing is, is such a, it's such a base for, for, for human qualities and understanding of yourself. That's why it's, there is a lot of psychology in it without, you know, without going into that too much, but really just, Again, being, it's like being a teacher. Here's a book that's like a teacher. This is like what you would want your best teacher to provide for you, to embolden you and to reassure you and to guide you, you know, these, you know, in the ways of like, like you said, not going necessarily into the darker possibilities, but really where, where your rare breedness can take you. Well, where is, where do you, um, what do you, in your audacious, (laughs) In your audacious manner, where do you see yourself? What are your goals for the next like number of years, two to five years? Yeah, I, we're we're trying to get out of the branding business and and more into teaching leaders and teams um, about this rare breed ethos and really driving it throughout their cultures and their thinking. And that 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 work has become extremely meaningful. We're right at the brink of it. We're doing a huge workshop. Uh, with a very, very big brand. Uh, it doesn't get any bigger than them. And it's just exciting to know that we're going to be at that level to be able to speak to those people and just kind of you know share this, this philosophy and to help I- empower more rare breeds in the world. We need more of them, not less. You know, that work to me, when we wrote Rare Breed, I think it 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 felt it felt more meaningful than some of the even the work that we were doing at, at Motto, which I think is extreme. It still matters and is very important. But when we wrote Rare Breed and we saw the kind of impact that it was having, it changed the work that we wanted to do. I wanted to do more of that. I was like, how can we help more people? You know, how can we get more people to uh, to to really own who they are and 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 tap into their to their superpowers and and become everything they've ever wanted to be? You know, like. That's pretty pretty awesome. You know, it's a pretty awesome job, if you will, or calling to have. So, I think that's kind of where we're we're headed. And then we're also, you know, we're building our show out even more. 
So we're we're in talks right now to try to build the show out on a on a bigger platform to have uh, you know different types of conversations where they're very culturally relevant right now. You know what is it? I think around mental health. You know, rare breeds often, if you look historically back through time, rare breeds have been some of the crazy geniuses, right? They've been some of the most tormented uh, in terms of feeling like they didn't belong because the world didn't understand their crazy ideas. And if we can create a safe place for those conversations to happen, where we can talk about what it means to be a rare breed, um, how you navigate the world as one, what are the things to look out for? Um, you know, how do you how do you um, not shun people that are different? You know, all the all the things that seem like real fundamental stuff, but like we still haven't figured this out as a as a as a comp- you know as a as a culture as a world. Yeah. Um, we still kind of you know shove out the 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 oddball. And um I think if we can shape that conversation and, and talk more about mental health and like what it means to um you know when you're when you are obsessive, for example, um how can it lead to your greatest work? But what are the pitfalls of it? You know, when can it really become paralyzing and make you go a little bit nuts? You know, how do how do we sort of balance that and help people give them the tools that they need to not sort of um you know, suffer in silence, right? A lot of people like they don't know how to deal with what their their obsessions. You know, they're just kind of like trying to navigate the world the best way that they can, and they're very difficult to work with if they've never. You know, we've all had that person that we're working with who's like so obsessed and like can't get anything done because it's never perfect enough. And what do you do with that? How do you help that person? Because sometimes they they don't know when done is done, and you know, how do you help them understand when done is done and sort of things like that, you know? Um, what does perfection even look like? Is it attainable? You know, just having those conversations around the things that um, I don't think enough people talk about and, and also talking about it on a, on, a, on a scale that people that you know, and what I found to be really interesting about our conversation with Charlemagne, so we talked to Charlemagne the God about his audacity and how his audacity was the thing that, dreamed him off of a dirt road in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, but it was also the thing that got him fired from the Wendy Williams show and probably told that he wasn't going to have a career. And to see his life lessons about how he, you know, had been known for self-admittedly, you know, talking very negatively about women, about people who were, are gay, you know, um, people who are, you know, identify as trans, like these were things that he was saying and we had the opportunity to have that conversation about what have you learned uh, about this? You know, did you realize you were doing it? How did audacity give you the black eye? But also, how did it give you the knockout punch? You know, the, that's the duality of the coin, right? Like, audacity mm-hmm. is his superpower. And yet, it was the thing that was getting him in the most trouble. And uh, so, to, to kind of have him understand that journey and to be able to talk about it in a way that other people can understand and be like, wow, like just because you're a celebrity, it doesn't mean that you don't have those same issues. Um, right. And for him to be very open about mental health, I think was very courageous, you know, and that he struggles with mental health. Um, and so that's kind of the, the conditions that we wanted to create around the show. Uh, and I'd like, I'd love to do more of that. I think it's, it's, it's exciting work. It's, it's great to have these conversations. I think they need to be had. Well, I couldn't agree more, Sunny. And it has been just such an honor to talk to you and get to know you and get to know your work. I mean, you are a super heroine of of greatness. Of, of and I just I see such a need 
for what you all, you both are offering. And I just wish you just the best, but I don't even think you're in, I won't even say luck because you're just on the trajectory, my friend. We're trying, we're trying. I, just you know, wanna... I don't know about that. It's about just kicking down doors and, you know, yeah. just fighting for what you believe in. I mean, that's, that's how it gets done. You just, you got to keep, you got to keep pushing. You got to keep trying um, because the world is there to try to, you know, uh, your, whether it's your own um, voices, your own sort of internal dialogue that you have, or the voices of other people who just say you can't be everything you want to be. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta shed that skin. You gotta, you gotta like do you, you know, and you gotta find a way to, to, um, to succeed because of who you are, you know, and uh, that that's what everybody needs to know. It's you can do it. You know, you absolutely can. Absolutely. I love that. You can do it. You can do it, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Sunny, you can find your all the information. Can you just tell us real quickly where we can find everything about um, you and Ashley and what y'all are up to? Absolutely. So you can find us at rarebreedbook.com. You can also find us at wearemotto.com and you can also get the book from there. And then we're on every... Uh, you can buy the book everywhere books are sold. So Amazon, Books A Million, Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, and also Porchlight if you want to buy a few copies, but absolutely. And then Rare Breed Quiz is uh, rarebreedquiz.com. And then you can find us all over social at This Is Rare Breed and at We Are Motto. I love it. And everybody go out and buy that book. It is really... It's it's actually it's beautifully written. I don't know who. I mean, I'm sure you alternated, but you're you both are gifted with words, and um, I, it, it was it's just very very uh, beautiful writing as well. So, thank you so much, and to everybody out there, as always, I'm pulling for you. Mm-hmm.